0: Welcome to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD, presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. This week's Grand Rounds comes to us from the University of Arizona College of Medicine and is titled Global Pediatrics Treatment of Scorpion Envenomation. Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you for coming. So I get the pleasure of introducing Leslie Boyer. She graduated from Harvard Medical School. She did a residency at Children's Hospital in Boston in the University of Arizona and was chief resident here at the University of Arizona. She did her fellowship in clinical toxicology, and she is the director of the Venom Immunochemistry Pharmacology and Emergency Response Institute. That's a handful. Since... 2006, also known as Viper. She has received numerous honors and awards from the department and residents within different departments as well. She has numerous and numerous publications on scorpions and scorpion stings and also snake bites, and participates in lots of research on both of those topics. She is well known for her energetic and fascinating talk, so please welcome Leslie Boyer. Thank you very much. When I was asked to do this presentation, it coincided or overlapped in time with the request related to a new interest group in global pediatrics within the department. And so I decided that since the VIPER programs are becoming more global in their reach, that what I would do would be a variation on the theme of what I've presented before, so that I can show you not only what we've done right here in Tucson, Arizona, but how we work together as the University of Arizona with colleagues in far distant locations to address questions that are tantalizingly similar but not identical to the ones we might have here. So what I'd like to go through today, just conceptually, is a little bit about the scorpions and a little bit about scorpion venom. Then I want to talk about three countries, science and technology in Mexico, clinical research in the United States, and then how to address the different challenge of public health needs in North Africa during this challenging year. So if we go back in time, we don't have to worry about where's North Africa and where's Mexico, because we were all basically tide pools then. And the scorpions were swimming around long before they crawled out and had legs as carnivores that were nibbling on the little tide pool critters nearby. The presumption is that it was during the Silurian era that venom began to evolve and that these little sea scorpions were developing the capability of making their prey hold still long before they crawled out onto the ground. Nowadays, the ones that we are concerned about are all terrestrial. I'm showing you several of the best-known serious contenders for cause to be in the Peds ICU and they all have a certain similarity in their appearance. They've got pinchy parts up front, crawly parts in the middle, and a pointy thing at the end that can deliver venom. I'm not gonna get into scorpion anatomy or physiology, but for those of you who may be interested in ion channel toxins, evolutionary biology, or the difference in neurotransmitters and axonal function between the vertebrate and invertebrate recipients of venom, there is a lot that you could study. And anyone who has a special interest should feel free to come by and chat with us at Viper some other time. Now, the medical challenge begins when venom goes into a person. It goes in via the pointy end. If the person is a small child in Tucson, Arizona, something like this might happen. This was filmed at Tucson Medical Center. The little girl is six years old, and she was stung five hours before this video was done by a bark scorpion, the typical kind that we have around here. The interesting thing about her movement disorder is that although she's out of control, almost the way a person with a seizure might be, She is not unconscious. In fact, she's fully capable of communicating. I asked her to please look at the camera and she's trying. The extraocular muscles are out of her control. The neurons that control that motor movement as well as the ones that control every other muscle she's got are out of control. It's not only the ones that affect muscles, but also the ones that affect secretory function and indeed any peripheral nerve of any kind will be affected by the sodium channel toxins. And the end result in some cases is ventilatory failure because of poorly coordinated movement of the chest combined with hypersalivation and inability to clear the airway. For mysterious reasons, kids that have the really severe effects and have respiratory failure will sometimes go on to have pulmonary edema as well. This has not been well studied, and for those of you going into pulmonary science as a career, come around and I'll give you some hints for some ways to study that system that nobody's done yet. Be that as it may, doctors have known for a long time that if you can keep a child alive through this serious time, they do okay. And in fact, in Tucson, Arizona, what you saw just now, which was the same child on the ventilator in the x-ray picture and now here in recovery, is something that's very easy to do. The scorpion venom is cleared by the body over the course of a day or two, and children go back to normal if they've been kept properly oxygenated. If you go into shock, if you go into full ventilatory failure along the way, then you can die from scorpion sting. And although it's very rare in the United States, historically it's been very common in Mexico. Now, as it turns out, in the U.S., well, let's say in North America as a continent, there are quarter million known stings per year. There are probably a million, but not everybody tells us about them. And of those quarter million, there are approximately 15,000 where somebody in the United States speaks up and tells a poison center about it. Most of those U.S. cases are trivial. It hurts. They're mostly in big people like you and me, and ouch, 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 we hurt. We might feel a little anxiety, but it's nothing life threatening. And without any medical care at all, you're going to be okay. However, of the 15,000, there are about 250, so about 0.1% of the total number of scorpions that are Arizona children with severe envenomation. So very, very few American citizens have the kind of effect that I've just shown you. Most do great, but what about those 250 or so? By the way, there are people in the room who know that we've had enrollment numbers up to 600 per year, but they're not all critically ill. Okay, so if you're in Arizona and if you're lucky enough to live in one of those yellow circles, you're gonna be fine. You're going to have a miserable day or two in the ICU. Nobody likes that. But you could be okay. Now, once upon a time, back before we had a big, mean, nasty FDA looking down our shoulders, it was possible to make antivenom in Arizona. And, in fact, for years and years after Herbert Stankey established the capacity to make antivenom at Arizona State College in Phoenix, the state of Arizona allowed ASC and then ASU, to make antivenom and to distribute it throughout the state for children in need. This continued for years and years even though the modern FDA era came into being. The FDA elected to look the other way because this was perceived as such a challenging rare condition that it was better to leave well enough alone and not to worry about the fact that Arizona, as Arizona tends to do, was breaking federal law. However, if we ignore the United States of America, the standard of care for envenomation of any kind, whether it's snake, scorpion or spider, is to use antivenom. And unfortunately, with a standard of care that's antivenom, we have a global shortage of antivenom that's very severe right now. Right now, if you were to go to the website for the World Health Organization in Geneva, you would find And it's hard to find because it's really obscure even on the WHO site, but you would find that in 2007, envenomation by snakes and scorpions was declared a neglected tropical disease. This is important because it elevates the status of this disease to one that is a higher priority for public health professionals worldwide. The fact that it is a neglected disease derives from the fact that there's very little good treatment for it, and that even though we know how to do better and we know how to keep people alive, they're dying by the thousands in the case of scorpion sting worldwide and tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands in the case of other envenomations. Well, back in 1999, two things happened in rapid succession. Marilyn Bloom, who had inherited Stankey's operation at Arizona State University, decided to retire and to quit making anti-venom for the state of Arizona. Two weeks later, my phone rang, and it was National Geographic Television wanting to do a story on the scary creatures of Mexico. Most people in the room have heard this story before. I'm not going to tell it in detail, but the essence of it was that we decided that we would take a look at what was going on in Mexico, that would help us to gain insights into what was happening in Arizona. Marilyn had told us she was leaving a five-year supply of antivenom that would run out in 2004, and we wondered what was Mexico doing. The pictures you see here across the top are first one of me, and I will point out, 1999, heavily gravid, and then of our group cogitating in a science laboratory of Dr. Lurival Posani, remember that name? then a picture of a videographer doing what Americans do best, which is publicizing things that aren't real science yet. And then my baby was born. Amelia was born three months later. And a couple of months after that, I flew back down and we had baby's first plant inspection, baby's first scorpion milking, and uh, baby's first horse inspection. We became intrigued with the notion of working together with Mexico. Would it be possible if Mexico was, in fact, making antivenom to test it out and to see if maybe it would serve as a replacement for what Marilyn Bloom had made? Let's stop and think just for a moment. What does it take to make a new drug? And it's really very basic. You have to know who needs the new treatment. Do we have a way to get it to them? What would work to treat them? And then if we had a good theory, does it really work? And then what's the best way to make it so that it comes out safe and clean? And then testing it. Is it really safe and clean? And then how can we make it as efficiently as possible to save as much money? And then even though we tried really hard, can the intended patients afford it? Well, those questions would be true no matter where you are in the world and no matter what drug. But if you think about the state of antivenom shortage that the WHO has declared, you'll realize that the left column defines what the tropical world cares about most. They know who needs it, it's their people, their children in rural areas and in areas where there are a lot of interactions with nature. They believe in antivenom and making it safe is a matter of just doing best practice in the factory, whatever that might be, and then trying to keep it as cheap as possible. On the other hand, if you're in the United States and you've got an FDA, you really, really have to worry about the right column Does it work, really? Is it safe, really? And then later figure out how you're gonna get the insurance companies to cover it. So let's take this in a couple of pieces. How do you make anti-venom? Well, you don't if you live in the United States because it's too expensive and it's just not practical and no way. So let's pretend you live in Mexico. Since this is a pediatric conference and I'm supposed to be talking about global pediatrics, you have a brother who's a pediatrician and tells you about his sick patients. And the two of you have a family ranch that you inherited from a grandfather who deforested the rainforest years ago and has been running cattle on it ever since, and you're thinking of maybe planting back some rainforest trees and repurposing the old ranch. What you would do if you wanted to make an anti-venom is first you'd get a critter. This is a Centroides limpidus, a southern Mexico deadly scorpion, being zapped with a little electricity. You would then use that venom to immunize any vertebrate that was willing to hold still and be cooperative for you, and if you own a ranch and you're kind of a traditional anti-venom person, you might convince a horse to play along. And then you apply sunlight and grass and let the horse make antibodies. He gets re-immunized a number of times, the horse does, and over a period of a year or so, begins to develop such a high titer of anti-scorpion venom antibodies that you can then encourage the horse to have a new career as a blood donor and you take some blood out maybe six liters at a time and you let it settle and after you let it settle you separate it and you put the red blood cells back in the horse because he's got more work to do and you send him out to the field And then you take the plasma fraction and you haul it to a company somewhere nearby in Mexico where they have inexpensive but effective methods of taking the horse plasma and processing it with chemicals and purifying it up a little bit and then freeze-drying it. And this is a different company's product. This is Wyeth Rattlesnake Antivenom. But it's the same deal. You put it in a vial and you cap it and you freeze-dry it. And that's antivenom. That's what you do if you live in Mexico. And if you live in Mexico and you look at a typical Red Cross Clinic shelf, you see, oh, aminophilin, dopamine, snake antivenom, and scorpion antivenom. And there you are. That's the emergency shelf in the Red Cross Clinic in León, in Guanajuato. And the Mexican Health Department is fascinated when you show them a graph that shows that the reported cases coming in through the Red Cross and Social Security systems have been rising, rising, rising during the years that you introduced your new product. And yet, the death rate has been dropping, dropping, dropping. Everyone gives testimonials that it's a wonderful, great drug, and therefore, it may be sold. But let's be skeptical U.S. citizens just for a moment living under the FDA. Does that prove that antivenom works? Not at all. Maybe during those same years, they've improved their pediatric ICU capabilities. Maybe the reporting has changed. There are a lot of other explanations for a graph like this, besides one company's product is good. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Rounds Nation after a short break.